open your Bibles in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. There is an error in the bulletin. It's not verses 23 to 35. I'm sorry for that. It's verses 36 to 53. Um, so basically from verses 36 to the end of chapter 24. Um, we have been hearing from Jesus Christ what this millennial kingdom that is now among us uh, uh, will be characterized by. We saw how Jesus, the king over, over the cosmos, predicts calamities uh, for it throughout this history until he comes back. We have seen how the church uh, also, whose king is Jesus as well, uh, predicts uh, calamities, persecution, unbelief inside the church as well until he comes back. And now uh, we are going to hear about uh, maybe two, three parables that Jesus has to speak about the last times before he comes back for his people. Uh, so have that in mind and please notice how quickly um, you will realize that an amillennial eschatology, which is the one that I'm uh, coming from, um, doesn't allow any space for passivity. Yes, Jesus is ruling. Yes, Jesus is coming back. But passivity is not part of the Christian call in this earth as we wait for his coming. So please stand to hear uh, the preaching of God's word, uh, excuse me, the reading of God's holy and inspired word as we consider what he has to speak to us this morning. Uh, verse 36. Uh, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be his coming, the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must, must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Um, I don't know if any of you have been ever been into a hurricane, but if you have, then you probably know that the days before the storm hits ground are usually pretty beautiful. Uh, Florida, for example, becomes a, a very neat place before a hurricane. Temperature drops down uh, to a pleasant tone. You are not dying of heat. You are actually in a pleasant place. 
and there is even, even uh, some mild breeze that you enjoy that makes a good walk a really pleasant task. There are no clouds in the sky and everything seems to be perfect. For the naive of heart, for the tourist, um, the conditions are simply perfect. But for Floridians, especially those few that tend to be alert, those conditions become the moment for preparations. To fill in your sacks with sand, to put your blinds on, and so on. To be ready. Because you know that just in a few days a huge storm will touch ground and there will be no time at that point to escape. In fact, it will be too late. Now, there is something similar to that in the text this morning. Our text speaks about the mission of the church, you and I, at the present period of the millennial, millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, as we await for the king. And that is my theme for this morning, awaiting the king. And we will see this theme in two parts. First, in watchfulness, and second, avoiding carelessness. So avoiding the, uh, excuse me, awaiting the king, first in watchfulness, and second, avoiding carelessness. So let's see then the first point, awaiting the king in watchfulness. Now, several weeks ago, if you remember, I said that there are two big, fat, chunky questions that the disciples asked Jesus. The first one was the what. The what about the final days, which Jesus has answered thus far up to verse 35. And then the second one is the when. When is Jesus going to be back? How do we know? To which Jesus turns his attention in the following verses right now. So listen to verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And I kind of, if you remember last week, I kind of went ahead of myself uh, last week when I affirmed, pre affirmed precisely this reality, that no one knows when Jesus is going to be back. We don't know, and we are not meant to know. But I also, I want you to appreciate how firmly Jesus presses this point in the psyche of his disciples. Not even the Son knows. This is meant to mean that in the redemptive work that Jesus Christ is doing here on earth during his pilgrimage in the Gospels, his human nature truly doesn't know. He doesn't know at this point the exact day and the exact hour of his return. If Jesus Christ at this point doesn't truly know, who do we pretend to be when we affirm that we know? That should make us stop from taking seriously anyone any teacher out there who says that he knows exactly when Jesus comes back. If you hear something like that at any point, please run away from him and take your wallet with you because all that they want is your money. In, in fact, for all intents and purposes, the coming of the king seems to be this kind of weird event that will be preceded by a strange coldness and tranquility from the world's perspective. Listen to verses 37 and 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, notice how Jesus, is characterized, uh, Jesus characterizes the times before his coming. Uh, he says that the event of his coming will be a time similar to the days of Noah. 
Many just take verse 37 and camp around verse 37 and affirm that the times of Jesus' coming will be difficult times for the church. Times of darkness, times of lawlessness, difficult, uh, very hard, very dark times for his church. And that is indeed part of what is being said in this verse. As we have seen before, unbelief, persecution for the church will be normal things that the church will have to face. And, and it seems like in the time before Jesus' second coming, it will be very rough for the church. However, this is not the entire scope of these verses. Because the days of Noah also had Noah working on the ark, if you remember. They also had Noah faithfully proclaiming before a faithless generation about the incoming judgment of God and about the only escape of that judgment through Jesus Christ, symbolized in the form of the ark. So yes, the days before Jesus' coming will be full of lawlessness, but they also have a calling for us Christians, for the church. And our call is not to give way to alarmism, is not to give way to anxiety, is, to, is not to turn the news and lament how bad the world has become or how crazy the world is going right now. How many people have piled up goods in their houses? How many of them have bought those apocalypse shelters underneath the earth because they think the end is coming and what they need to do is to seek refuge and run away from everyone because only them are going to get saved? That is not what Jesus is calling his church to do, brothers and sisters. Jesus calling to his church is the same call that Noah had. It is the faithful proclamation of the gospel, the faithful witnessing to the world that there is light, that there is salvation, that there is hope in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you paid attention to the verses that we just read, we will discover that the days before the final judgment are marked by this strange, as I said, calmness and tranquility and normality. People enjoying themselves, living the normal life, seeing the world, traveling around, marrying and, 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 and enjoying everything. In other words, as if nothing else matters. This is the end of the world and I feel fine. Carpe diem. Seize the day because you may have no other. That is the whole attitude that has and will mark the world until the end of, the, of its days. But what is the attitude of the church then? Is it running away from the world? Get scared and hide? Reject everything? No. The attitude of the church is one of prophetic proclamation and prophetic engagement with the world. Prophetic proclamation because I have said, as I have said, the church brings the good news of salvation to the world and to those who are in need until the end. Prophetic engagement because even the Christians who will live in the final days will have to live in the world, will have to work, travel, get married, and so on. And as they do so, they do it in a very distinctive Christian way. They engage the world for God's glory. They work, they marry, they raise kids, they go to school, they play games, they watch sports, all for God's glory. Nothing is to be despised because Christians do everything for God's glory, and that, that is our call until the end. Awaiting the final day in passivity, in lukewarmness, giving way to evil in our lives, is not the call of the Christian. 
because God uses the efforts of the Christian in this world as a signpost for everyone to see. Until the end, Christians are to be lights in this dark world, shining Christ's light for everyone to see and be held. But the day will come when the ark of salvation will close its doors. And then those in Jesus will find, will find final vindication. We will see glory. But those outside Jesus Christ, they will be taken away. They will be removed, which is a sign, a symbol of damnation. If you pay attention to the text, they were swept away in the flood. In fact, listen to verses 40 and 41 and 42. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. The symbolism is not difficult to understand, is it? One is a, a Christian and the other is not. And these verses have been used by some to affirm that there is kind of like a secret rapture uh, at the coming of Jesus. But I think, and my professors think, so you don't know I'm making up stuff, I think uh, this, this is an error, mainly because of the context. If you saw in previous verses, uh, the, the water of the flood take away people from the earth. This is a sign of judgment. Almost everywhere in the scriptures, wherever you go, and you see people being taken away, that's a sign of judgment. Israel is removed from the land. Exile. Judged. Therefore, Jesus' words here cannot mean anything different than what he already said in the, in the context immediately before. Namely, that being taken from the world is actually a pretty bad thing. He is simply building on that idea. If you are taken away, you are taken away because you don't belong to the earth. Remember scriptures, brothers and sisters, the earth is the Lord's. The righteous shall inherit the earth. The new Jerusalem descends from heaven to this earth who will be renewed in which no evil dwells. Why would God take away his people from earth if this is my father's world where I'm going to dwell? No, brothers and sisters, this world belongs to him. And because it belongs to him, it also belongs to us in Jesus Christ. We will not be taken away. Just like Noah after the flood, we will dwell on the earth while the others, the evil ones, will be judged by God. Here then, Jesus' explicit call for his church in the meantime, verses 42 to 44. But know this, he says, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Some friends have shared with me how many times they have arrived home and finding no one inside their house, they thought that the rapture had happened and that they were left behind. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus also is not saying that you are not to take naps. That is not what he's saying here. Jesus actually is alluding to the attitude of the Christian while he's waiting for his coming in this interadvental period of his kingdom. The heart of the Christian, in other words, has always to be watching out for the mission that Jesus has given him. That is, to glorify God with all of his life. 
This is a call to persevere in his call as a Christian. It is a call to trust in Jesus Christ uh, and, and be the light of the world as, as he has been commanded to be. It is a call to watchfulness. In the most basic form, it is a call to continue doing what Christians do. To trust in Jesus Christ at all times, at every moment. And it's this trust that imprints in our minds with the absolute certainty that whether that is today or in a thousand years, we know Jesus is coming back. We know that Jesus is coming back. And we are therefore to move in this world as if he were coming today. And it is that certainty that dispels any doubt. If you have trust in Jesus, then be assured that when he comes back, you will be with him in glory. Because the basis of our trust and confidence in the final day is not ourselves, is not our actions, but is Jesus and what he has done for us already. Now, this is the positive side of what Jesus is saying. He's calling people to be watchful, to live the Christian life, to trust in him at all times. But there is also a negative aspect, and it's a warning against being careless. And this is our second point. So look at verses 45 and 46. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household uh, to give them their food at a proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now these two verses set the context for the rest of the parable that we are going to see. Principally, they place in the foreground the responsibility of the 12 disciples, of pastors and elders, and of every single Christian in that order. The disciples, the officers of the church, and then every single Christian in that order. True faith in Jesus Christ naturally is followed by great privileges granted to us in Jesus Christ. The principal one for this interadvental period is simply no other than perseverance. Perseverance in our lives. The Holy Spirit will sustain us until the end. In that sense, the twelve had the duty to bring God's word to God's people at all times, no matter how difficult it gets. And it's not different for pastors and elders, even today. Perseverance in that calling means that pastors and elders have to feed the, the flock of Christ, care for them, provide for them every spiritual treasure that God has entrusted to his church, no matter how dangerous and how difficult it gets. For the Christian who is not a leader in the church, the demands to persevere are no different than uh, for the disciples or for the leaders. Yet the avenues in which this call displays is different and is going to look different in the world. Because Christianity, especially Reformed Christianity, brothers and sisters, doesn't seek to make everything a church. We have different places that we move in and live in. And Jesus takes fathers, mothers, children, grandmas, grandpas, rich, poor, free, and slaves, workers, and businessmen, where they are. And the way they persevere in different places will look different, yet the principle will always be the same. Constant trust in Jesus Christ. A trust like that, however, does never leave the person unchanged, as if nothing happened. It changes us to the core. It moves us away from ourselves and into the service of God and others. The Christian businessman will care for his people, will care for his employees and their well-being as much as he can. Why? Because he's a Christian. Why he couldn't say that? 
or do that. The Christian father, on the other hand, will provide, nurture, care for his family for no other reason than in doing so he will be displaying Jesus Christ to his family and will persevere in that nourishment no matter how frustrating and how difficult it gets. Simply because that is the call that God has given him in this life. Life here on earth is so rich and so full of complexities that we cannot explore every single avenue of, of them. But in all of them, as multiform, as, as rich as they are, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes, uh, makes its effect to be felt and puts the Christian to work and persevere in order to be, bring glory to God, to his Father in heaven. To those who do that, Jesus says, they are blessed. And there is even an explicit mention of what is expecting them uh, when, when eternity comes. That is not only eternal life in Jesus Christ, not only forgiveness of sins, which is already great and you already have in Jesus Christ, but it's as if that were not enough, Jesus has something bigger and, and, and more rich than just that. Jesus affirms that there are recompenses for the Christian. Can you believe that? God is not only merciful and gracious in salvation in Jesus Christ. Not only he gives us what we can't obtain uh, freely in Jesus Christ, but he also is so rich in mercies and blessings that he recompenses even those feeble efforts of obedience. Here now the negative side though, verses 48 to 51. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to bid his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunk drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a recognition by Jesus himself here that in this already present millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, there are what there are what we call True believers and false believers, wheat and tares, living together. True believers are those who deposit their faith in Jesus Christ. False believers are those who pretend to do that. True believers are like that uh, very healthy tree that rooted in Christ produces good fruits for Jesus Christ. They are marked, in other words, by perseverance. False believers are those who produce no fruit at all and no perseverance. Rather, they use their apparent delay of Jesus Christ in order to abuse their peers. And, and, and notice also that Jesus Christ is speaking about an apparent delay of his coming. Scriptures speak about this apparent delay of his coming simply as the demonstration of God's mercy, his long-suffering, he extending the, world to the, uh, the hands to the world so they can come and repent. But that is not the way in which these guys are seeing the delay of Christ. They take it as an opportunity to display lawlessness and their lack of faith. And again, the, constant, the context is the same as before. These verses have in view the, the apostles, uh, the pastors and elders, and the common Christian. So we hear in the pages of the scriptures about false apostles, do we not? False teachers who are only caring for their bellies, not for the people that God has given them. And they exploit God's people for their own gain. In the same way, I'm sure you, we all are familiar with those modern uh, false pastors and false er elders whose only purpose is to feed themselves. 
There is not a single mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their sermons because they don't care about Jesus Christ. All that they care is selfishness and self-interest. But perhaps the most important warning of Jesus is that, Christian, is that Christians cannot be neglectful of their calling. Neglect thinks that the urgency of the gospel is not important. It's a mere exaggeration. Uh, Jesus, that's just, he's, he's just an exaggerated person. He was using hyperbole. Uh, he thinks that the day of repentance can wait. Why can I repent now? I have days to come. I don't need that. Neglect of the gospel takes for granted God's grace. Indeed, it seeks to abuse God's grace. It merely feels remorse for the consequences of sin, but he doesn't change. He doesn't uh, think that the action that he has performed is a sin. In the parable, this wicked servant is always neglectful. Did you see that? Always pushing away the day of repentance, abusing God's benefits. His precious gifts to humanity become something that he abuses, oppressing his peers, dilapidating his own gifts in drunkenness. It is a picture, really, of a person who knows not what true repentance looks like. In a sense, he is a tomorrow kind of person. Tomorrow I will believe in the gospel. Tomorrow I will repent. And tomorrow never arrives. Because what is happening in his heart is that he is always rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Passively justifying his behavior saying that God is always patient, that God is always there, he can wait. So the warning is, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, to not be like those people. Maybe we will die and Jesus will not come back yet. Maybe you, boys and girls, will grow old and will die and Jesus will not come yet. But maybe the Lord will not come in a thousand years. We don't know. But may that never be an excuse for you to deny Jesus, to reject his gospel. That is his point. Because the truth is that we really don't know when he's coming. Maybe he will come today. I don't know. And then the doors of the ark will be closed definitely for those who didn't want to repent. Maybe, as I said, he will come back in the next 1,000 years. And yet the parable and its principle will still be true. Taking for granted God's grace, being careless with it, is the issue. For those who are neglectful, the punishment is very serious and describes it in very graphic terms. And it makes sense, does it not? To those whom much is given, much is required from them. Those who heard the gospel and rejected it have a worst condemnation awaiting them. But please, brothers and sisters, do not lose yourself in anxiety. Do not eat your nails. That is not the point of the text. This saying is for those who are hypocrites, for the ones who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the ones who don't want to believe. Because for God's people, this is simply a powerful warning, a very mighty one, so we are not tempted in trying to go in that place. For God's people, for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, this is what the text means. Are you ready for it? Strive to look to Christ. Strive to trust in Him. Abandon yourself in His arms. Do not give way to unbelief. Rather, believe in the gospel. 
Pray that the Holy Spirit help you to persevere. And in the end, please know for sure that you will receive the crown of glory. These days that we are living in may feel like the world uh, is going very normal, like nothing happens. But for us, we know better, do we not? These days are simply a call to watchfully be ready, to await for the coming of the King. So when He comes, when the storm hits, He may find us working. May the Lord help us to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need to recognize that many times we have been, we have been careless and we have been neglectful. Please forgive us, Lord, and thank you for speaking to us this morning, letting us know that uh, there is still time. So, Father, help us to look to you. Help us to strive to trust in you. Uh, remind us, Lord, that you are the gospel, that you are the one who has come with open arms to uh, give salvation to everyone who believes. So, Lord, affirm our feet again in you. Help us to be um, trusting in you at all times because we are weak and we are feeble and it's so easy for us to wander away. So hold us tight, Lord. Uh, help us to trust in you and um, fix our eyes in you. Thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that we are united to you and that in that union, you help us even to persevere in this world. And we look forward to the day when you are coming, Lord. Please be quickly, Lord, and come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.